Yeah, the um, basic reason or the motivation of the Buddhist teaching is is for the removal of dukkha of unsatisfactoriness, wrongness. Mm. This doesn't. This is quite simple. Uh, so quite a straight, realistic, it's not some idealistic thing. It's not about being the greatest person, being, having the answers to everything, um, knowing how to operate a business properly, or whatever. Though these things may, may come out of it, but the, it's not even being able to be a great meditator. I mean, this, this may be something that comes out of it, and yet the, the fundamental point is always the understanding and freeing oneself from dukkha. And I, I tend to not uh, be careful about these translations with, uh, because actually something like, like dukkha, which we translate often as suffering or unsatisfactoriness, there are, has different meanings and the main meaning of it you'd hardly recognize as dukkha you'd hardly recognize as suffering the main, the main uh, aspect of dukkha that's, that's particularly what the Buddha's teaching is there to eradicate is the, the root of it all and at the root of it you, you'd hardly recognize it as painful it's, uh, so, um, um, so the three kinds of dukkha the dukkha which is concerned with direct pain uh, pain, physical pain, emotional pain being hurt, suffering, disease and so forth whether you meditate or don't meditate this is going to happen to you in one, one way it doesn't seem that Buddha's teaching does very much about that except prob- it probably means that if you practice properly and you put it in the, you're not really so violent you won't get into so many fights um, chance you won't get into heavy alcohol or substance abuse, you might live a bit longer and you might suffer less emotional pain through guilt through um, uh, corruption through cruelty you might have a sweeter heart which will be of course enormously helpful to one's emotional well-being one may by that may be in fact able to bear with and relate to the inevitable painfulness of life in a far more uh, spacious kindly and equanimous way so we can say yes uh, Buddha's teaching does give us some remedies to these things Second kind is the second kind is is the painfulness or the dukkha concerned with with the changeability, the the decline of things, the way that things tend to fade out. So uh, youth changes, health changes, things we're fond of tends to disappearing sooner or later. However much happiness you've had in your life, you know that it's very fragile. You can't guarantee 
it's going to last one second into the future. But you can guarantee that it will, that it will end. <laughs> Cheerful, huh? <laughs> Think of the decline, the decline of things. Um, you know, this is certainly something that uh, affects us, and well, quite a bit of our activity, I would suggest, is about trying to be create enough security that means that things will decline as slowly as possible. Pleasant things will decline as slowly as possible. One has some security. One has some insurance. One has some things to support well-being. One makes good friends. And you can see that, um, in a way, the practice of Dharma will uh, mean that one does, say, develop those and make constant those qualities that bring around peace of mind, peace of heart. One establishes good friends. One establishes uh, skillful activities so that one's own um, well-being will be as constant and as sustained as possible. So that, that you know, Buddha Dharma does does definitely affect this. It's important to to you know be very realistic about it. One's own happiness, one's own well-being, one's own freedom from worry even from guilt, that essentially uh, practicing Dharma, you, you, you can invest, to put it in just in really, uh, you know, quite simple worldly terms, you can invest in what's going to bring around the most useful long-lasting results. You practice kindness, practice patience, practice uh, honesty. Mm. It may mean your world changes, you may, you, know, you may meet unpleasant people, but in the long run you're going to end up feeling good about yourself. At the end of the day, what counts, what stays with you is your own, your own honour, your own integrity, your own freedom from, from remorse. And this is something that uh, if we just practice on the level of precepts, kindness, simple skillfulness, and sustain it, and value it, and remember to to use use one's practice so that you can actually recognise and give time to honour that which is good in oneself. And to to uh, then then you experience this kind of fortitude and well-being. So these are two kinds of 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 dukkha. And two kinds of ways, and the ways in which Dharma helps to uh, free one from that. Now, the third kind is is called the dukkha of conditionality. This take this is this is much more difficult to explain. In a way, more difficult to to be freed from, and yet, of course, to, yet finally to free oneself from this is freeing yourself from all of it. This is the kind of basis. And what it, what it means is that uh, our experience of reality is conditioned into um, the experience of, of, of our life is one of separation, of 
things, things occupying different positions in space of like, you know, I'm here, and then there's this kind of empty bit, and then there's lumps out there, which are all you. Mm-hmm. And there's the sense of, which is an effect in consciousness, isn't it? Um, so that one experiences it like that. We experience a space and separation. We experience, a, a, this is an apparent experience. In fact, if I say, well, you know, how far away are you? then all I can say is it's, it's something manifesting in visual consciousness. You know, if I was wearing spectacles, theoretically you could all be just little images painted on the inside of my glasses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, I just, uh, one, one interprets this visual experience as people out there, you know, seven feet away, 10 feet away, 50 feet away. In fact, uh, all that one ever experiences is visual consciousness arising with, with forms um, and that, that, that's interpreted in terms of distance and separateness. I can never actually experience myself being here and you being there at the same time. What tends to happen is first of all you regard something out there and then very quickly you refer back to here. So this sense of separation is really an, an activity of consciousness, a way that consciousness keeps kind of skipping eye to mind, visual, visual data are interpreted in a particular way. The sense of self and separateness is, in, is, is inferred. But notice you can never see your eye. You, you see through the eye. You in, you, because you can see, then you understand you must have eyes. Mm. You don't actually see the subject and the object at the same time. You see the object, and because it's an object, you infer a subject. Hmm. Same thing with, uh, we, we experience things conditioned by time. We call things the past, the present, and the future. Something happened yesterday, and something will happen tomorrow, and so on. But again, this is an effect of consciousness. You know, actually, all you can know is that there's the present moment, now, and there's a memory. And the act of memory says, oh, that, that thing was an hour ago, that thing was ten years ago. That thing's the past, it's not the present. And tomorrow there will be. There's memory and expectation, which are both particular psychological occurrences happening now. Did you see what I mean um, in terms of space and time are both constructions of consciousness? There, and so, and we are, and there's this conditioning process that creates both space and time. It also establishes pleasure and pain. Some stimulation at certain times is called pleasant, sometimes it's painful. Now these, we, these are conditioned but that doesn't mean they have no value. They're not totally fantasies. You know, they are—they are—they are, they're, they're the sensory apparatus. And so that um, a certain kind of temperature will be regarded as pleasant at a certain point. That that sensation is registered as painful.
you know, if you, you know, you, okay, you contemplate a particular, sometimes you contemplate a particular sensation in your body, and it can be just on the edge of how painful is it? Or is it just mild discomfort? Or is it just something you don't want right now? And what about psychological pain? Not just the physical things that we can say, well, that's real. You know? But things like, uh, I don't want to hear something. Therefore, it's unpleasant. I don't like that sound. Therefore, it's not music, it's noise. Um, you know, I don't like the taste of bean sprouts. They taste bad. They're horrible. Mm-hmm. Where does pain and pleasure come from? They are conditioned. That is, we have particular references, uh, sometimes extremely personal references, and that things are measured against those. So we see, you can get down to things like colors or color blends. You know, I don't like orange and purple, makes me feel sick. I like pastel greens and grays. Particular kinds of sound and music, particular kinds of taste, particular odors. One person might find them attractive or neutral, another person can find them totally repugnant. Where does pleasure and pain are conditioned? They are. There's something that, when I say we create, then we don't, you know, we don't do this consciously from really from a personality point of view, but our sensory and psychological structures and, and habits and processes and training defines, defines them. So that it can, there are cases, of course, where, where maybe the apparatus is tampered with and a person doesn't know what's pleasant or painful. And they don't recognize things in terms of space. And they don't have their memory goes or they can't discern what's past and what's present and what's future. A newborn child doesn't know what it is. He doesn't think, well, here I am, let's get going, I better learn how to walk. It, um, you know, it's just there, and it, it you know, it's look. You've seen them, little things. They look around, and eyes are going all over the place. Like, hey, what's that thing down there? You know, and it, they realise when they think that this thing moves. Hey, maybe it's connected to me. It's a, you know, it's a hand. It can grab things. You know, and then it finds out, puts things in the, the mouth. You know, the simple. Um, you know, the whole process of growth is, is conditioned. You know, certain pleasure centers are established. First pleasure center is the mouth. You know, so the baby is always poking things in its mouth. Hit the pleasure button. So pleasure and pain are, are maybe the, the first things that get established in the birth of a, in the sentient creature. They are, this is going to kill you. That's painful. This is going to nourish you. That's pleasant. Valuable signals, essential signals, and yet signals. They are, so they are conditioned. And we have to then gradually refine that to, you know, maybe, uh, you know, putting glue in your mouth is very much the same kind of texture as yogurt, but wait a minute, taste, that means, no, it's bad, it makes you feel sick. And as you grow up, from, you know, you often have to learn the hard way eating coal and poking, you know, sticking your finger in the fire because it looks pretty. 
and finding out that 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 thing is pain and hurts. And you gradually learn all these things. But of course, as you grow up, you learn a lot of things. You get conditioned to a lot of ways. And you find, you know, maybe uh, you had a hard time with a... You fell off your bike when you were three or four or five, and therefore you've got a kind of fear of bicycles. Bicycles are seen as dangerous machines, or you know, you had a hard time with um, your brother, therefore all kind of larger males are frightening. Whereas you had a nice one, perhaps larger males, older males are, are kind of pleasant, protective, benevolent creatures. And as we, uh, we can see that our, our pleasure and pain perceptions get quite, quite highly defined and quite highly personalized. Sometimes there's a lot of trauma in them, aren't there? Where, where a particular event has so deeply imprinted itself that uh, everything resembling it is seen in exactly the same light. Fear of heights, or fear of animals, or fear of strangers. Or These are then pleasure, pain, time, space are, are conditioned. Why is then this is dukkha? Because um, it creates the sense of um, having to creates the sense of having to hold things, have things, find things, get things, protect things, sustain things, even though it can't be done. So the pleasure-pain system always says, get that which is agreeable, even though you can't have it. You can, you can touch it for a while and it flies away. It says, don't, don't have anything that's painful, even though you can't help have things that are painful happen to you. So the very conditionality of pleasure and pain, even though it's, you could say it's vital for living, sustaining life, is unsatisfactory, always sets you up in an arena where you can never win. You can never get enough pleasantness, and you can never avoid completely, you can never avoid unpleasantness. The sense of experiencing oneself as separate means that there's this strange relationship with the other. When I say the other, it can be other people, it can be the world, it can be the world of nature, it can just be um, you know, the, another sex or that which is other than ourself. There's this right, fraught relationship. You either want to bond to it or defend yourself from it or sometimes bond to it and sometimes defend yourself from it. Or, you know, it's, it's definitely it's a kind of, there's a resonance there that is irresolvable. And yet, of course, uh, and sometimes we want to get away from the other, and then we feel kind of lonely. We want to be with something else, apart from ourselves. So this then is you find yourself in a situation where you can neither fully unite with things, nor get away from things, nor be content with either of those positions. Restless, isn't it? You can't 
get away from what's unpleasant, you can't get, a, get with what's pleasant, and you can't give up trying. <laughs> you can transfer it, you know, from dogs to cats, from cats to TVs, from TVs to football. You know, you can kind of keep shift, which is what we do generally. We sort of shift it around. And yet every one of them, you, you can't get it. And yet you can't not want to get it. So this is dukkha, because it may not be acutely painful, but it's, it's like continually being slightly out of balance. You can never really get a rest. You can never really feel completed. You're always teetering around, having to adjust something or another, having to support something. Just consider what it's like, you know, having a physical form. We take it for granted. We've got so used to, to the continual caring and tending and, and having a number of things to back it up. You, know, like you can just turn a tap on, you get some water, you can wash it. What happens if you don't wash, you know? How long could you, you know, what's going to be like a week later? You can't wash it, you can't groom it. I mean, it's really rough, isn't it? A week, a month, a year? <laughs> Yuck. <laughs> so, so, of course, you know, there's plenty of water and you can do it, no problem. But you take it for granted that, there, that, that that state of dependency upon something that you can't actually guarantee one creates a human beings create a society and a structure and a way of trying to guarantee it and yet of course there are those times occasionally when it breaks down and we realize how fragile we are when the, the lights blow electricity goes the heating packs up the fridge breaks down the car goes kaput you know it doesn't rain or it rains too much or you're in some god-awful hole where, where there isn't any running water you know you go to India and you turn a tap and you just get a squeaky sound few coughs come out of the pipe. My goodness, can't wash, you know. And then you you suddenly see how how fragile the structure is. And even if the structure is pretty solid, as it is in a country such as this one, the amount of effort to keep things going, to keep it all, hold it together, this is dukkha. It doesn't stand up by itself. Now you consider, we can't, and right now, you know, people can't drink the water anymore. You're going to have special water because the water's all filthy. Getting to the point, you can't, you can't just wander around and start eating, munching the grass and the leaves and the trees. You're going to have, you know, you're going to have kind of food coming in nice little packets with no sodium in it, fat-free and balanced and no gluten and, you know, and... This to survive, you can't. You can't just live on the earth. You're connected to a, a supermarket or a shopping mall to survive. You can't drink the water. You can't eat the food. You got, you know. <laughs> you can't survive without a box to live in with with heat in it and oil and uh, money. This is dukkha. <laughs> so we, you know, we cruise along with all these things in place, thinking, "Yeah, well, this is pretty good." And see the problem? What suffering? You know, just like like walking on ice that's one millimeter thick. 
But even then, even when it's like that, just even when everything, you know, the whole thing is being held together by this magical, uh, this uh, magical society, still you're walking around it thinking, what's the point? What's the meaning of life? Am I balanced? Is there something more? What am I doing? Why am I thinking? Why don't I shut up? <laughs> it's dukkha, right? The sense of just being a separate organism means you think, what, what do I fit in? And what, what was the point of being here? And what happens when I die? And why am I alive? And why don't I have two heads? And we, so this, this uh, the sense of self is, is the, you know, the sum total of all conditionality gives rise to this strange semi-detached being not detached enough to not care and yet not attached enough to be able to, to completely forget it either. It's sort of half in, half out. Not really out of the world enough to be able to, not to, not to affect us and yet not in it enough to be able to, to completely absorb in it. So this, this strange experience we have of being a self. This is dukkha. So you know, if one was entirely just this, just if one was entirely just this body, just this mind, was entirely that, so that nothing, you know, there would be no nothing affecting you. But it's not that way, is it? One is affected by heat. We're connected to an outside, apparently outside world. Heat, um, physical impingement, contact, sounds, smells, things affect us profoundly. We're exceptionally fragile, vulnerable beings. So we're not separate from the world. And yet we're not united with the world because, because we, can't, uh, we can't live in it. We're not like rain or wind. You can just kind of be around. You could always find vantage points in the world because you're, you're not really in it either. You're not in it and you're not out of it. This is dukkha. Feeling off feeling wrong and actually the Buddha's teaching is to to its highest purpose its highest goal the goal of a lifetime the goal is to to free one from this by freeing one from the sense of self from this sense of separation from these conditions of time of space, of pleasure, pain, of me and you, of self and other than self. And actually, though this this is of course a profound task, then uh, Buddha's realization was that it ends right where it begins in the conditioning structure of the mind. And if you don't have to kind of work out the whole world, um, you start on where the world arises for you, which is in your consciousness, in your, in your conscious functioning.
And we find um, through, through meditation, which is the direct witnessing and a gradual letting go of the assumed constructions of me, my identity, which includes of my preferences and my, my uh, impulses and my habits and my wants and my not wants. You know, in a, in a steady, careful, manageable way. It's a progressive expansion beyond one, ourself. A calming out of one's twitchiness, out of one's compulsiveness. And then there can be this a, a gradual growing out of that uh, conditionality, out of that set of conditioning. So, for example, the, the means are, we, first of all, we begin with uh, focusing on our experience, such as it is, perhaps just on one, you know, on a point, an easy point, uh, an available point in our experience. Breathing, the body, walking around, sitting down, simple things. And uh, we begin to, when you look at it directly, then you, you, and the, uh, there's a, uh, a recognition of there's, a, there's the thing you're witnessing and there are various kinds of mental states that either cloud the picture or, or uh, get in the way and gradually one learns to, to calm, to dispel those so there can be that sense of clear awareness of things, clear, uh, clear awareness of a, of a breath or of a feeling. And recognize that that arise it passes it comes it goes it changes arises and ceases and this sign is something that you that is you can actually uh, see in all phenomena they all do that most significantly and for uh, say the practice of buddha dharma what counts is the phenomena of your world that is um your reactions, what appear to be your reactions, uh, your mind states, your, your states of consciousness, your happiness, your passion, your fear, your enjoyment, your ease, your calm, your panic, and so on. And the things is arising and ceasing, rising and ceasing. Now what that does is it means instead of there being a continuing development of reactions, that is, trying to feel this and not feel that, labeling some things as pleasant and approved of and some things as unpleasant and not to be had, this, this actual um, proliferation of the uh, alienation and uh, gratification programs, then we're learning to accept the presence of that which is um, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, that which I think of myself as being rather good at, that which I'm rather ashamed of, as that which all is arising and ceasing. 
So you're finding a kind of level, a point of steadiness. And you begin to also realize that within the pattern of all, of all, uh, everything you focus on, there's a kind of, there's this process of arising, ceasing, and then absence. Without, and the absence, the zero, is a very significant sign. We tend to not notice it. But uh, zero, as any mathematician will tell you, is, one of the, is the most significant number of all. Zero, then, is the thing that qualifies everything else. How many zeros you've got. Zero is the thing that pushes something up into the next category. Ten, hundred, thousand. Similarly, the, the zero experience of consciousness has an effect of shifting our center to a different place. Now, if you notice something like, uh, you know, your own emotion you have, say, you, painful emotion, and you notice its absence, you notice it's arising, ceasing, and it not being there, and you, that absence is recognized, just what does it feel like? How, what does that do to that particular process? You know, maybe somebody you really dislike, and there they are again, you get that powerful feeling of distaste or aversion, and then you notice the absence of it. Not through, not through shoving it away, not through denying it, but just seeing it stop. And being in that space where it stops, what does that do to that emotion, that emotional state? You're not rejecting it, you're not disapproving of it, you're not trying to get rid of it. See what it does to it. It, it actually takes it, it puts it in a very different position. The passion of it dies. Zero is the great dispassioner. It takes the sting out. It takes the, it takes the reality out. You see, oh, it's just a feeling. It's just one of that. You can experience yourself... as the not having. And r remember that a Nietzsche or the experience of impermanence is definitely not a rejection or anything, it's just the fact. And it's a fact that we overlook because uh, the habit of distraction and delusion means that as something's passing, we jump to the next arising, or we create something. Just really see what happens when something that you feel yourself to be some mental state when it ends. And keep your attention right there. Now how is that, when you watch it witnessing a mental process, a habit, an addiction, a desire, a uh, habit actually end and you're there at its ending, what does that do to that habit? That's the kind of question. I know what it does <laughs> to mine, if, one ta if I take the care to do so. It actually totally changes 
the reality and the impingement and the effect of that habit. It takes away its attachment, it's the way that it grips me, the way that I feel compelled to act upon it or reject it or feel ashamed of it. And having taken that away, the habit stops. You watch this sometime in yourself. Sometimes deliberately, things you get really worked up around, you know, your local governor or senator or whatever, and you bring him up into mind, hey, so taxes, and then, you know, you just watch the feeling when, it, when you've, you know, that passion rolls along and it comes to me, and watch the ending of it. And then is it, if you didn't get the point, do it again. <laughs> do it again. And eventually, you know, eventually it's that, that zeroing, which is not a repudiation, but just the recognition of ending, it actually changes the impression that that process has on you. And finally the process begins to soften up, change. You may experience a sense of compassion or forgiveness or equanimity where before there was indignation, all kinds of twisted up feelings. This is a kind of um, something you can practice with, witnessing process of anicca, how it works. And again, it's not, a, it's not an ideal. It's not something that you, you, it's not a label you slap on things in order to, to get rid of them. It's a, it's a process of, of witnessing. And particularly witnessing in your world, witnessing the things you feel yourself to be as of that nature. And we recognize, you may begin to assess that a tremendous amount of one's apparent world, the things that we kind of linger around us, the sources of those residual tensions, those unresolved fears, that sense of embarrassment, the feeling of what one feels oneself to be, is just a whole mass of stuff that you've never really fully looked at and seen for what it is. So it's still kind of hanging around like a shroud. Often not, perhaps not that painful that, you, that you're ever compelled to deal with it, but just the kind of a self-cocoon of nervousness, of compulsiveness, of unresolved little anxieties and bitternesses and worries that we've learned to live with, like a shoe that doesn't quite fit, but you've got used to it. Because there can be a, a, a kind of um, fear to actually look at some of this stuff, to look at our, at our anger or our, our jealousies, or our little greeds, our spitefulness, you know, wanting to get even on somebody or whatever. And in meditation you have the chance to, to develop this skill of sustained attention so that we can turn towards some of the things that make up the world of me 
and free ourselves from it. So the process of deconditioning begins right there with deconditioning ignorance. So instead of not seeing, instead of covering up, we, we, the first condition that we put aside is the condition of ignorance, of delusion. And then the condition of conditioning factor of denial, defense, aversion, and then the conditioning factor of greed, gratification, wanting to be, to consume, to have, to hold. Those three are the conditioning roots. And they can be abandoned because the practice of meditation, the practice of Dharma is a direct it's not like you're removing things and there's nothing. Because with every act of witnessing, you're bringing in truth. You're bringing in honesty. You're bringing in, uh, instead of greed, you're bringing in uh, non-demanding patience. Relinquishment. Instead of delusion, you're bringing in clarity. Instead of a denial and aversion, you're bringing in honesty and courage. just by that act alone. This is the power of meditation. You don't have to do more than this. You don't have to worry about it or create some self out of it, like how good you are and at it and these things. Because you can find that, that meditation becomes another object that the self instinct goes around and we use it as, a, as another thing to, to have and be and get good at or not. Or, used to defend ourselves, shut things off. So, so also one who, who cultivates Dharma, we consider many times in the process of dealing with our thoughts, with our bodies, with the things around us. To whom does this belong? An assumption that's made whenever the mind, whenever consciousness conjoins with an object, there's a little old bell here, there's a me comes up. I'm not the bell, this is me. This is not my bell. This is my robe, that's not my bell. Quite like this to be my clock, this clock. If I sit here long enough, every, you know, I'll gradually go fond of this thing, and after a week or so, you know, well, you know, my clock, it kind of gets a little bit like me. And you know, my friends, some of you I've seen for a few years now, you're kind of my friends, other people, not my enemies, not my friends, just people. So then the mind lingers, when consciousness lingers with something, this minus comes up, me, mine. And uh, re-examine that. My thoughts, my life, my children, my clothes. They're not, are they? <laughs> They're not anybody else's. It's not. 
and they're not even, they don't even belong to themselves. Mm-hmm. There isn't one. When you see something like a, you know, a child, if it's not mine, it's not yours, it's not even its own, you can't say that, because the child can't be a child without a parent, can it? So the, the childness of it depends upon some relationship. So you see that these things don't even exist by themselves. There are no children, there are no men, there are no women, there are no human beings, there are no animals, there are no bodies, there are no minds, there's no world, there's no, there's no beyond. There's no nothing either. <laughs> Because everything depends on something else, doesn't it? You, you, can't, you can't have the concept of women unless you've got something to contrast it with, you've got men, and vice versa. So you can't say that there's no such thing as women. Sorry, I don't mean thing. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah? Except in another context, except in the context of, say, of males. There are such things as human beings. You know, if, if there was nothing but humans, there wouldn't be humans, would there? You'd only have humans because you've got dogs and cats and pigeons and bicycles and things like that. So, of themselves, they don't exist. They don't belong to themselves. They don't belong to me. They don't belong to anything else either. So, the whole of our structure of reality is really a process whereby things only have a notional existence in a context of something other than self and the other than self isn't really other because it, it exists in relationship to the self. So you've got this what's called condition, conditioned arising. What a, what a process it is. Really. So this gives us, uh, what's the relationship? If things are neither mine nor not mine, nor anybody else's. The, the absence of greed, the absence of hatred, the absence of delusion is the relationship. We can say, we can bring up things like compassion and uh, sensitivity and sharing and uh, clarity and so forth. But um, by and large, the the Buddha couched it in terms of, of not suffering, not greed, not not needing, not demanding, not feeling alone and needing to be with something, not feeling crowded and needing to be alone. <laughs> you know, that non, none of that happening. You say the absence of suffering is the result of understanding anicca, anatta, impermanence and not-self. The result of this is not dukkha. You know, 
that's their goal. It's a realistic experience. When we try to put it in ideal terms of, you know, what do you get, what have you got, you know, what's the result of it, then what happens? Greed comes up, that's what happens. <laughs> so I want some of that too. And then I think he's got it, but she hasn't got it. So then <laughs> sense of self comes up, doesn't it? And we can really worship this person. We think, well, she's not worth listening to, but this guy's really got it together. You know, it's the one for me. So all that happens, doesn't it? All that self, and then the competition, and the jealousy, and the delusions, and the empowerments, and the um, you know, all these ghastly mess that uh, human beings are so good at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And yet when we come back to the point, you know, nicha anatta anatta, where does that leave you, you know? You're not really anywhere, but you're not nowhere either. There's that supreme balance. You can't say anything about anything apart from it arises, it ceases. There's its presence, there's its absence. The absence of it is what conditions the presence of it. The presence of it is what conditions the absence of it. And in that, there can be, because of this, because of the complete acceptance of presence and absence as being essential, then there's peace. There's no tugging and pulling. Do you see that? You see how it would be impossible to experience a breath unless there was a non-breath, unless there was an ending of it. You couldn't, you can't, you know, if it's just total experience, you couldn't get any definitions of it. So it's the non-breath that allows you to experience breath. The non-body. With the people you, you know, things you're fond of. Just realize that it's their non-appearance which allows you to be fond of them. Because <laughs> 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 uh, can you imagine it's like just eternity? Imagine being eternity pressed up against somebody you like forever. <laughs> oh, this is hell, isn't it? <laughs> And yet, you know, the ability to then to come and to go and to change is actually that's what allows it to to be uh, enjoyed. And yet, why well, then we take but then we take the absence of it as, oh dear, sad, what a shame, gone. You know? We see absence as somehow separate from presence, and we see death as separate from birth. Death is a terrible tragedy, and birth is the wonderful celebration. As if, don't you, you see? There's a connection between the two. You know, you know? <laughs> you know it's a kind of birth-death thing. One end of a sausage, and the other end. You, know, you can't actually. I mean, got, got it? You know, it's, it's actually obvious, isn't it? But see how emotionally um, conditioned we are. Can you imagine getting older and older forever, and not dying? Ever. And nobody ever dying. Ever. 
what would that be like? There'd be no love, would there? There'd be no sense of specialness and preciousness and value. Everything would just be so what? There'd be no kind of courage and faith and uh, because there'd be nothing to do. But as it is, the impermanence and not-self doesn't, when it's fully realized, not only does it make us, gives us a place of peace and balance that's, that's real. You know, you don't, it's not an idea that we hope for or we try and sustain. It's just in your, when you really accept it as it is, it is that way. And in that, we're not just kind of wiped out into a state of, of bland passivity, but the true nature of the mind, of consciousness, the ability to empathize, to resonate, to relate selflessly is possible. Joy, kindness, compassion. These are not ideals. These are realities. Why shouldn't it be that way? So the end of suffering, the end of dukkha, which may sound like a rather prosaic kind of nihilism, is actually the way to bring around the reality of these beauties of humanity rather than just trying to create them on an ideal plane. The end of suffering is the beginning of true life. The enrichment of the human. And it comes back to this being, this moment, what you're in contact with now. It's right there, that's the the edge. That's the leading point. That's the place of practice. 